You're listening to the Safety Work Podcast, episode 62. Today, we're asking the question, what are the benefits of job safety analysis? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety Work Podcast. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? David, today we're going to talk about JSAs and whether or not they are effective at improving safety. I find it a little bit difficult to give a introduction to this topic mainly just because of the uncertainty about what a JSA actually is. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go through our discussion. But generally, we're speaking, we're talking about something that is variously called a job hazard analysis or a task hazard analysis or a task risk assessment, or possibly, depending on where you're working, a safe work method statement. But the general idea is just any sort of risk assessment which is performed fairly close to when the task itself is going to be performed. And that usually works by breaking the task down into a series of steps, talking through the safety hazards, talking about the controls that are necessary for keeping the task safe. And then the team goes ahead and does the task. So Joe, I actually came to the paper and, and the idea of job safety analysis, because um, we've now got this uh, this link to a portal available where our listeners can drop ideas for episodes. And we'll publish that when we publish this episode so that um, the listeners that haven't seen that yet can, can do that. And I was looking for a paper on golden rules or cardinal rules or life-saving rules, because there's a huge amount of demand in the, in the listener group for that. But I thought JSAs might be a, um, a close enough thing because there's not a lot of research on the former that I've been able to find yet. But something that I found interesting in the paper that we'll talk about today was it appears that um, Heinrich might have been the first to coin the frame, this phrase, job safety analysis, in his 1931 text. So we might need to check this out with Carsten Bush for listeners who remember I did an interview with Carsten in episode 17. And just as a shout out for him, he just published a book only weeks ago titled Preventing Industrial Accidents, uh, Reappraising H.W. Heinrich as More Than Triangles and Dominoes. So if people got interested in that podcast, and here's another touchpoint into Heinrich's work, it might be worth uh, tracking down a copy of that book. But Drew, before we dive in, your general thoughts on JSA, however you want to conceptualise what a JSA is? Look, I have to be honest that I'm not a fan of any sort of, I was about to say any sort of risk assessment that it just happens before a job, but I think it would be fair to say that I've never yet met a method of risk assessment that I fell in love with. One of the difficulties, and that particularly, I think, shows up in our paper today, is the lack of standard terminology, um, which may seem like a petty complaint. But the paper lays out fairly clearly that as you start heading towards performing a task, there are lots of different opportunities to do risk assessments and make decisions. Some of those are way in advance when we're designing the layout, when we're selecting tools and equipment. Some of them are intermediate, some are right before the task happens. And as a community, we're really inconsistent about talking about the different risk assessments at different stages. And I think that inconsistency plays into the actual practice of risk assessment, in that we conduct it and we cover topics in the risk assessment at the wrong times. 
So very often we document hazards and controls that are supposed to have already been dealt with or that we're relying on someone in the future to deal with. We're very seldom doing risk assessment and it's informing the decisions that we have the power to make right in front of us right now. And so as a result, risk assessment, I think, and JSAs in particular, end up being very much about documenting things that have already happened or that should happen in the future, and very little about making helpful decisions that improve the work that's about to happen. Yeah, Drew, I think my experience, I I reflect on my own career experience around JSAs, and I was struggling and I still struggle to think of a an experience I've had in my career where I've seen a JSA used well, even even as this paper steps out, how it how it should actually occur, who should be involved, how it should happen, you know, how decisions should be made, and how that should then go on and influence the safety of the work, and obviously how it should only be um, performing that role, like what you alluded to, Drew, of managing the context specific residual risk that hasn't been addressed by all of the other risk management practices that should go on in an organisation. I found some let's say, parallel processes to JSAs a little bit different to this, like where you might use a, a, a specific lift study for a complex crane lift, where it's very much about how we're going to do this work and and really open discussion and decision-making processes. And, you know, for listeners, I mean, I, I've, I've sort of experienced on both the contractor and the asset manager side of, of, um, of industry and don't see any real differences there. And I could just go on for hours about, all of the experiences I've seen in my career of the transactional and compliance-based nature of JSAs not really having any contribution to the safety of work. But we head into this um, podcast with an open mind because we do want to talk about the benefits of JSA and maybe provide some direction for our listeners of not removing JSAs from their business, but how they might uh, re-engineer the process. So let's talk a little bit about the existing literature. This paper does an attempt at the start to document how much has already been written about JSA and finds very few practical references. Um, It seems that there are just a couple of researchers who've published a couple of papers each, but we know very little about how JSAs tend to happen, what the practical benefits of them, what the limitations are. I think it would be fair to say that there's a lot more literature telling you what you're supposed to do than literature studying what actually happens. Yeah, Drew, I think within that literature, it was a very small literature review in this paper. And it's, this is a recent paper that we'll get to in a moment. This is only, uh, well, 2019 now. So it's not like there's a decade gap between this paper and a whole lot of more work that could have been done. But the, like you're right, much of the literature just makes claims about, you know, if JSAs are done as as they're designed, then what could they actually deliver in terms of benefits? So statements like, you know, literature suggests that JSAs can make work both safer and more efficient. There was one study um, by Zheng in 2017 that found that a thorough JSA considerably reduces the number of recordable injuries. Now, I haven't gone to that, Drew, but I, I imagine just from that claim there that you will, you personally would not be a fan of the way that that research was conducted. I, I haven't looked up the Zheng paper, but yeah, the, the, the claim is at face value implausible that you could do a study that would show that any practice, you know, how, how on earth would you have done a controlled study that actually showed the reduction from a particular practice like that? Yeah, 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 particularly um, and what we know about the statistical invalidity of recordable injuries as well. So um, we might pull that out and see if we can get a hold of that and see if we can um, make that available to our listeners as well, do their own critique of. And then like a participative JSA process where the workers are generally involved, you know, with the design of the task promotes a greater ownership over the decisions and a better understanding of, of the work. 
you know, claims about improving communication between workers and managers and claims about improving the individual knowledge and the awareness of hazards. So all these things that um, the literature says should happen um, if JSAs are done well, but in terms of empirical research, there's not a lot of people who have um, who have picked up JSAs. And Drew, this might this is an interesting reflection about the safety literature. The things that are almost most central to safety practice, almost taken for granted, things like JSAs, things like life-saving rules, things like permit-to-work systems, things like induction training, things like audits, all of these things, there's actually not a really big body of safety science literature about the um, the effectiveness of these, these practices. David, I think we'll see from the uh, paper we're looking at today, perhaps some hint of why that is. I, I think they've done an unusually thorough job of research um, in that this, this paper, I think we were both impressed when we first picked it up with how they'd gone about it. And even then, this is not a paper that can really speak to whether JSAs are effective or not, which just sort of shows how much work is necessary to do a thorough study and how many people are willing to put their day-to-day -day safety practices to that sort of research scrutiny. You know, who is going to pay for research about whether something is working or not, when no matter what the research says, you're not going to stop doing it because it is so central. You know, no one not wants to be told that something that they're going to do anyway is a waste of time. That's just wasting money on research. Yeah, so for our listeners who keep asking me about the Take 5 episode, that is in Drew's hands for when he's ready to talk about it, because I think that is something that falls very much into those gaps. Uh, okay, so, so watch this space, because yes, someone did in fact pay for that sort of research, and the results <laughs> are quite interesting, and no, I can't share them till I've got them written up and peer-reviewed properly. Yep, no, very good, and that, and that will come. So there's some limitations with some of these claims that that um, we've just kind of gone through, but there's also the literature identifies some limitations for the effectiveness of JSAs and a lot of the, the you know the practical application of JSAs and these might not be hugely surprising to our listeners that you know there is there's research and and David Boris is one who's published research in the Australian construction industry on the gap between work, let's say workers imagined in JSAs and the way that work is actually done on construction projects. There's claims that for larger, complex and dynamic tasks, pretty much like all of those common in construction industry, that the JSA process is just too simplistic to, to suit that sort of dynamic context, um, that they consume significant resources, resources in terms of time and effort to complete. The practice is often a transactional compliance activity and doesn't actually involve the workers performing the job or make any changes to the way that the work happens. And that therefore, I suppose many many managers and workers believe that they know their job, they've done the task before, JSAs are unnecessary. So Drew, these claims are also, there's not a lot of evidence around these claims, it's more anecdotal, but there is some studies, you know, similar to this paper, interview studies, which do actually explore this, particularly with frontline workforce and supervisors. So let's get into the study for today. The paper is called The Application and Benefits of Job Safety Analysis. It was published in Safety Science, a reputable journal, in 2019. All of the authors are from the Norwegian Institute of Science and Technology in Trondheim, which is an institute with a strong history of publishing quality safety research. And the Norwegian Institute also indicates that I'm going to pass off on to David to pronounce the names of the authors. Oh, wow, Drew, I'm terrible. But, um, but look, Eric Abrexen. Uh, Ingrid Solberg and Eva Svensley are, are the authors and apologies to our Norwegian listeners for or, or our broader Scandinavian 
um, listeners for making a mess of some of these European language names. But yeah, look, NTNU, they, they publish a lot in the resilience space and, and they've got um, a lot of quality researchers and, and they do um, produce a lot of quality work. And the aim of this study, Drew, I suppose the stated aim of this study was to investigate the practices and the benefits of job safety analysis in construction projects. The authors made, Drew, some contextual comments about JSAs. It was sort of as part of the introduction. And you you referenced this, I think, in some of your first comments that, you know, the authors did acknowledge that safety risks should be managed as early in the project life cycle as possible during design, planning and procurement, not sort of, you know, deferring everything to the people, you know, just immediately prior to the task to try to figure it out. And therefore, the JSA should only manage that residual risk of all the things that can't be done earlier on in terms of the design and planning activity. But they also make a comment that the JSA should only be required where safety cannot be managed by existing procedures, existing plans, existing barriers, or existing verified worker competence. And I think for our listeners, that could mean that there may only be an important few, you know, unique, complex tasks that should require a JSA. And in those circumstances, the JSA process should be deliberate, participative, and comprehensive. But then they went on to show that, you know, when they when they did this study that we're going to talk about shortly, that 50, 56% of the JSAs reviewed did not meet that criteria. So the organisation was basically doing double the amount of JSAs that they probably should have been doing based on their other you know, safety control frameworks. David, I think it's worth pausing here and spending a little bit of time talking about this one. So the activities like JSAs very seldom have any sort of theoretical background. And one thing that I think that this paper has done really usefully is they've put a sort of plausible theory over the top. And they've said that like most safety is captured either in the design of the project or it's captured by routine procedures, rules and plans. And and so there's a type of risk assessment that feeds into those early decisions. It's typically not called JSA, it's typically called something else. But that's a sort of static thing. And then you've got the things that can't be protected by routine that are variable for any particular task that need to be sort of protected in the moment. And that's why we do JSA, which is interesting because I don't think that actually matches a lot of what people think of. And as we'll see when they come later to the benefits, some of the benefits they claim aren't really in the form of making good local decisions. They're other effects. And that's what we need to be really careful of with things like risk assessment is that we're clear about what is the claimed benefit. We don't get to say we're doing this because it will improve decision making and improve the way we go about the task. But the benefit of doing it is it raises awareness of hazards and it helps people think clearly and communicate better. That's not the benefit you claimed in the first place. If that's the benefit you claim, that's the benefit you test. Yeah, look, Drew, that's a good slant on that. I, I sort of had a different slant on this. I thought when we were talking about when might a JSA uh, be a mechanism that might be helpful for changing the shape of work or changing the way work's performed. And I sort of thought of three different scenarios a worker might face. One would be just a routine job that they do every single day. And we know that that becomes very habitual and, and based on experience. And a JSA is really unlikely to change the way that a person approaches a task that they do every day, where they feel capable and competent um, and, and comfortable of the risks associated with it. And then you've got these individuals who perform tasks that they perform every day, but they, they're high pressure type tasks. And I think in this in the psychology literature, we see that mental rehearsal is a way of improving performance. So golfers take practice golf swings. And, and so if you were performing a high risk task, then you might talk yourself through how you're going to approach it just to make sure for yourself, you get the steps right. And then it's only when you come into these novel or unique environments or, or areas that are at the boundary of your understanding or experience or, or confidence 
that having this legitimate group discussion and bringing in this expertise and having an open conversation and actually stepping through a task from start to finish and checking that everyone's on board is probably actually going to change the way that you do it and serve all these benefits. But you know, when I reflect on this, I thought that might only be 5% of the times that we currently do a JSA in our organizations. And so that was the sort of slant that I was kind of reflecting on. And then later in the episode, in the practical conclusions, we might link that to some safety clutter um, ideas as well. Yeah, no, no, thank you for the David. I think that's a useful framework for thinking about this. Let, let's go through the method. So the study is based on six different construction projects. Um, and it seems that these projects sort of stretch across a couple of companies. Uh, at various times, they sort of refer to company A and company B. There's, they've interviewed people on each of these projects. And unfortunately, they don't give a lot of direct quotes or and only a couple of occasions do they tell us who is talking. So they've interviewed both, they've interviewed workers and frontline supervisors and safety personnel. Um, and you would expect that those people might actually have different opinions. And it's not always clear who's giving us what opinion. As well as those interviews, they did a couple of observations. From reading, I really think that possibly they only observed two JSAs occurring. Uh, which doesn't seem to be uh, particularly comprehensive compared to the number of interviews they did. Um, but then they also did a document study where they looked at 97 forms that had been produced through the JSAs. The implication, I think, is that in all of these companies, the JSAs tended to be recorded either before the meeting or after the meeting. And so they could cross-check what people said in the interviews compared to what was actually written on the JSAs but they didn't have enough volume to compare what happened in the meetings compared to what was written on the JSAs because they only observed two of the meetings. They claim that the analysis was grounded theory. It's fairly evident from the text, though, that that's not in fact what they did. The researchers clearly had this preconceived view of how JSAs were meant to work. And so the analysis is more of a comparison between the sort of ideal function of JSAs and what people told them which isn't grounded theory, but is still a perfectly legitimate way of doing a thematic analysis of the data. People who read a lot of papers will find that people tend to overclaim that they're doing grounded theory, when in fact they're doing some other perfectly legitimate thematic analysis that just doesn't have a, its name. Yeah, Drew, I think this, I mean, when I first went through this, I thought, oh, great, um, interviews, observations, document analysis, you know, three different sources of data, you can triangulate information, you can compare information. But yeah, I was a little bit, disappointed. Um, I think this could have been strengthened in a couple of ways. I think it could have been strengthened by doing separate analysis for like frontline workers and supervisors versus, you know, the comments made by project managers and safety managers, like a bit of a, the, the paper even talks to blunt end, sharp end, and it would have been interesting to see the differences um, that would have been useful. And then the observations, I think knowing that there was two observations, I think we can really discount whatever happened in those observations, because like, I think what we know, Drew, when we put field researchers, it can take a week or two or three for work to return to normal and for the workers just to accept that the field research is there and just to continue their work as possible. I think in these two cases, it would have been, hi, everybody, here's the two researchers and they're just going to listen into our JSA meeting today. And I'm not sure that that meeting would run how it normally would the first time that you know two new researchers are there. I also think that as, as a result of not seeing more of the actual JSAs and work occur, that the researchers are too optimistic about how much the documented JSAs reflect what actually went on. 
uh, th there's a lot of evidence that speaks to the fact that what gets recorded in documents like JSAs is very different, not only from how the work is performed, but even from what is sometimes said in those meetings about the JSAs. Uh, I think uh, a number of different studies, but one to point to is David Boris's 2012 study that just shows a consistent gap between what's in the JSA and what actually happens. Just a tiny preview of something that we're going to publish in future. Weirdly, this gap works in both directions. So people not only put controls into a JSA and then don't implement those controls, people implement controls in real life that they don't put on the JSAs. So it's not that the JSAs are the perfect picture and work happens badly. It's just that there's very little concern about making sure that the two are properly aligned. So do this study, I mean, it was for, for people just, you know, final considerations, you know, it was conducted, conducted in Norway, conducted in the construction industry, conducted in two companies. So the authors make strong claims about the results being generalizable to other industries and, and so on. But I would be hesitant to say that, you know, this, this one study that we'll talk about today, I think we're going to pr provide a lot of generalizable ideas. But, you know, this is, a, this is a big topic area and one that we might revisit a couple of times with a couple of more, you know, different nuanced questions about task risk assessment. But Drew, before we get into the findings, you, you had a bit of a deeper look into the different data sets coming out of the document analysis and the um, interviews and have some thoughts about how to how to frame the findings? Yeah, so, so we've framed our episode as uh, what effect do JSAs have on safety, which is the way that the paper itself frames its findings. And I think both of those are overstated from what the data and the analysis can show. I think the paper does something which is important, which is it talks about how people think about JSAs and how people would like JSAs to work. So I would tend to sort of reframe the question more to be, if JSAs improve safety, how would they work? Um, and that then generates a whole heap of hypotheses, these, that we definitely should go out and test, that we definitely should can use that intended function to improve the way we do JSAs, but we shouldn't make claims that JSAs actually do this. You Just because someone thinks that a JSA does something doesn't mean that it does do that, but it does suggest you know, that we can test whether it does do that in future. So dude, that's a good segue because the study identified the findings of the study identified through their thematic analysis six benefits and we'll talk about these as almost like conclusions from this study but i think based on what you've you sort of said there is each of these six benefits might actually need to be considered more of a hypothesis than a finding so but if but but the benefits as stated are uh you know jsa's provide a mechanism for the formalization of work they enable retrospective and prospective accountability allows worker worker participation and the possibility to influence their own work, creates a space for organizational learning and communities of practice, um, increases uh, situational awareness, and enables loss prevention in, in dynamic systems. So there's six, six benefits. And what we're going to do now is just talk briefly about each of those six uh, and, you know, why the paper formed that conclusion, what it might mean. And, um, and maybe Drew, I might kick off and you can just chime in as you, as you feel like it. So this idea about the formalization of work. So JSAs provide instruction on how to perform the work so that everyone knows what to do. So we're assuming it's a work group. There's there's more than one person. So we get together, we do a JSA. It's a task planning and clarification tool. It enables what we need to do as managers in our organizations, which is, you know, have coordination mechanisms and um, and divide up labor. And so one of the direct quotes out of the interviews was after every JSA, every participant in the work group knows what to do. 
David, a good example of where I think that claim is fairly strongly supported is a number of the JSAs in this project were to do with multiple crane operations. And I think where you've got, particularly since one of these was in a number of cases a mobile crane, this is a good example of where the standard procedures aren't sufficient to control the risk. There's always some residual risk that needs to be dealt with on the day through coordination and planning. And so having the group of people who is about to conduct the works know where the cranes are, know how the cranes are going to be protected from each other, knowing where the exclusion zones are going to be laid out on that particular day, I think is a really good example of how that is the appropriate time to be making and communicating those decisions is just before the work starts. And those were the types of examples where the participants were sort of very positive that having these JSA meetings were genuinely getting them ready to perform the work in a coordinated way. Yeah, I think that's a great example, Drew. The second benefit is accountability. And there was a bit of talk about the the JSA being beneficial, that if an accident happens, you can go back and look at the document to check what was planned to happen against what actually happened. And this is this sort of retrospective accountability. And this is where I started to get interesting in the findings, Drew, because um, NTNU are very much a university steeped in resilience engineering, and they've published a lot of what we'd probably consider to be new view type research. So they use this idea that you know, it allows the removal of blame from processes because you can go back and, and provide some support that people were doing the right thing. But it was there was a sort of some mismatch here between, I think, the author's ideas and, and this claim that they were trying to make about going back and looking what was meant to happen. But then they also made this claim about prospective accountability that, you know, some people were saying that if people put their signature on a JSA, it's likely to make the worker feel more obliged to follow the rules. So, there was this sort of mismatch in this theme of accountability about, I don't know, about just culture, but also about um, legal defences and also about sort of um, driving enforced compliance through making people sign something. So there was a whole mismatch of ideas in this finding. And I, th I think that mismatch of ideas creates a couple of different hypotheses that we can't answer from this particular paper. So one of them, I think, is a really interesting claim that is part of the reason why we get people to sign things at work. And this is the belief that if someone signs something that they're going to think more carefully about it, that they're going to feel more, more obliged to follow it. You, there, there, are, there are some reasons to believe that that might have a positive psychological effect, at least if you're aiming for compliance. But I really think that that's a hypothesis that needs to be tested with a specific experiment. And it's a type of A-B testing that any workplace could easily do. So, you know, if you've got JSAs, then why not split them into two groups, have one group has to sign the JSA, the other group doesn't, and see if that has any actual impact on how closely people read it or how closely they follow it. So useful hypothesis, but until you've done the experiment, doesn't mean much. The other thing I think is very revealing, but not in the way the authors think, which is that there's this benefit to having a signed document you can point back to. But it's not a safety benefit, it's a personal protection in the event of something going wrong benefit, which is a almost an adaptive misfunction of JSAs. If people are using them to shield themselves from blame or to blame other people, that could be a, a workplace adaption, but it's not an adaption to protect against harm from an accident, it's an adaption to protect against harm from the accident investigation process. Um, which is something that I think is a fascinating topic to go into. But yeah, this study doesn't do that. No, Drew, I agree. And the third benefit of JSA is worker participation. So this idea that a JSA process done as intended 
involves the workers in the planning and decision making about about work and this this is going to have a range of other benefits it's going to improve the local workforces monitoring and reporting and identification of hazards it's going to improve the quality of the operational decisions by lending the group's experience um, and insights into the work planning process and the JSA is is, is a form of of direct participation by the workers. So they get to influence their work through their local knowledge of the challenges and the possibilities that exist within their work and their workplace, which should provide benefits for the workers, for the work and for the organisation. David, I don't know about you, but it, it was at this point in the paper that I began to worry that the researchers were finding what they wanted to find rather than what their data was telling them, particularly given that half of these JSAs were prepared before the JSA meetings as in like half of their data set says that the workers cannot change what's in the JSA, that the workers are just signing on to things that are prepared beforehand. And then their own analysis of the JSAs and the content of them said that almost all of the controls were meeting existing legal requirements for the work or were recommendations that workers should be aware. So, you know, their own data says that even though the workers have been involved, this is not in any way changing what's in the JSA. So this is a hypothesis that they almost did successfully test and disprove from their own data. Um, the idea that workers are participating. So, I mean, now there's two separate things here. There's workers participating in the form of communication and accountability. That's definitely happening. But for this particular point, they're talking about workers actually being involved in planning and decision-making. And their evidence says the opposite, that JSAs are not helping workers be involved in planning and decision-making. Yeah, this is where we don't know in terms of the nature of the, the, the conversation, too, about whether they were talking about what was actually happening, whether the, whether the participants were talking about what they desired to occur. And, you know, we work with, I've still done some work recently with some organisations who operate like that, where the JSA is very much pre-prepared with with permit packs and things like that, and and, and is just communicated to the workforce, which, you know, doesn't serve any of the, the this, this purpose around um, local ownership enablement decision-making. Um, matching work as designed to local conditions and capabilities of work groups and things like that. I can readily imagine, though, that when you interview the safety managers, they think that they are providing worker participation. Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose more hypotheses to be able to test if you split out your participants by by their role in the organisation. And also, if you check some of these things, it, it's not hard to to check how many, even if you pre, you know, where in your business do you start with a blank page? Where do you pre-prepare? advantages and disadvantages for both of course but you know where you pre-prepare something and there's reasons to do that because you can bring institutional knowledge from prior completion of that type of task and facing those types of risks so prompting and guiding and pre-populating isn't necessarily a bad thing but you know you really want to study how many changes happen on the day there would be another little interesting study that you could do in one workplace is the comparison of the starting with a blank page versus starting with pre-prepared and testing things like thoroughness and ownership. And you, you might predict that there'd be a bit of a trade-off, that pre-preparing them makes them more thorough, and that starting with a bank, blank page increases ownership. But I'm just speculating there. That's a prediction, not a finding. Yeah, but I mean, I'd probably, yeah, that'd be the prediction that I'd make, um, Drew, and then you'd actually have to go back to what's the purpose of, you know, is, is the ownership of, of, of a few key controls that are readily identified by the work group traded off against um, you know, a lesser ownership, maybe in compliance with a more comprehensive suite of or list of ideas for the work. So Drew, the fourth was organizational learning. And this is where the JSA provides a mechanism or a medium for the transfer of tacit and explicit knowledge from the individual 
basically to the institution and done and to other individuals. So done well, this JSA process should be able to discover the way that people perform their work, make this information available to others in the work group. And the authors suggest that this the JSA processes actually process actually creates the factors that are known to generate learning within communities of practice. So JSAs, it's an event or an activity that brings people together. It's got internal leadership, whether that's a JSA leader or whether it's a supervisor. There's mutual engagement and interaction between peers and that the group produces artifacts. The community of practice produces an artifact, which is the JSA form. And I think, Drew, I went back because in episode, I remembered in episode 48, which we titled, What are the Missing Links Between Investigating Incidents and Learning from Incidents?, So in that episode 48, we talked a lot about learning being a social process, particularly like post-incident learning, and the importance of actually engaging in in dialogue that actually shared experience and and matched kind of, you know, the local context of the work that people faced. Yeah, I'm I'm unsure what to think about this one, David, in that notice that all of those things that you sort of talked through there are really coming from the researcher's ideal model about how this is meant to happen. They're not coming from the participants. And I really had a sense when I was reading through this part of the paper that this is the researchers speculating rather than having their participants clearly telling them, oh, when we do JSAs, we feel that we create organizational learning. I can't imagine someone on a construction site even saying that. What I do think is really interesting is that I've never met someone who works in construction-like environments who doesn't believe that having some sort of pre-start meeting or risk, whatever it is, whether it's a risk assessment or a talk or something, is a good idea. Everyone thinks it's a good idea. And I've never met anyone who thinks, hey, we do this super well, we can't possibly improve this process. So I think that is a really interesting open question is, okay, we want to bring people together with internal leadership to have mutual engagement before we start the work. What is the best task to have them doing? Is it a briefing? Is it a risk assessment? Is it a toolbox talk? Is it having coffee? I think that's an open question. Yeah, and I think we've got a lot of practices and language around it. Like you mentioned a couple there, through toolbox talks, pre-starts, you know, even through to JSAs, risk assessments, take fives. There's a lot of stuff that happens before the work actually happens, which is designed to set the work up to be successful. Yeah, I think there's lots and lots and lots of really interesting um research questions in there, but also um, practical considerations for organisations as well. So that's something that the academic community and the professional community should have a very strong aligned interest around um, trying to get answers for. And interestingly, Drew, you mentioned the the author's ideas. I suppose in terms of qualitative research, there were six thematic benefits, I suppose, that we're talking through here. And this one on organisational learning was one where there's like half a page of text and no quotes. And anyone doing kind of reporting back on qualitative studies I think that's also just immediately a bit of a red flag for me. If 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 a conclusion isn't substantiated by a quote that that allows you to do a sort of a um, a finding data type of match, because we don't see all of the data in a qualitative study, that's something that we go, okay, maybe the researchers are starting to communicate their ideas. So a really good contrast is this next one, which is hazard and situation awareness. Because remember, the authors when they're explaining why we did JSAs. They think it's about decision-making and putting controls in place. And that's not the same thing as hazard awareness. So this one is clearly not coming from the author's model. It's coming from the data. And they've got a number of quotes to back it up that clearly this is what their participants think is actually going on, is their participants don't think it's about controls or organisational learning. Their participants think we do these because doing them makes us more aware of the hazards. 
And the JSAs back that up with a lot of these supposed controls in the JSA are actually people doing the task should be aware of this. So this is not as a risk assessment tool per se, more of a just doing this makes us more aware of what's going on because we've talked about it because we've thought about what can go wrong. Absolutely. Drew, and I think in terms of thinking about what can go wrong being really important because um, in this finding, the authors refer to a couple of other studies and one previous study that found that um, individual construction workers only identified about half of the hazards that were significant to their work tasks. And we hit or I, I hear this a lot. I mean, I need to make my people have better hazard identification, hazard awareness, and studies sort of show maybe maybe an individual might find 50% of the problems with their work or their work environment. And then another study, Drew, which surprised me and didn't have the time to go and check, but found that you know only about 7% of pre-prepared method statements actually identified all the hazards of a situation. Now, when you think about it, it makes sense. If you pre-prepared a procedure for something and it enters into a dynamic workplace, there's always going to be things that, in that workplace that you know aren't thought of in the um, in the method statement. So JSA has become this this filler for um, you know the individual limitations and the procedural limitations right on the spot to make people hopefully talk about the hazards and and whether identifying the individual hazards is helpful or whether like you're saying Drew whether it's just everyone getting okay now I'm at work now I'm talking about safety now I'm about to do my work I better get get focused on what I'm doing so David I don't want to sound like a broken record but this is still just a hypothesis this is a reason why we might be doing JSAs there's no actual evidence in this paper that they do increase hazard awareness But I think it's one of the more important hypotheses to take seriously. That This is definitely something that we can't control by procedures. You can do all the planning you like, you can do all the site preparation you like, you can do all the procedures you like. Ultimately, in high-risk work, the immediate hazard awareness of people is important for safety. And as people doing safety or running an organisation, we definitely want to support people in that awareness. And so it is really important that we think about whether the things that we're asking them to do before work are in fact working or not working to help with that sort of awareness. Yeah, Andrew. And finally, so the final, the sixth um, benefit is just titled loss prevention. And this is where, this is almost like the throwaway last thing where the authors say, JSAs identify, you know, create an opportunity to basically enable the safety of work. So we get to establish risk controls. We get to put them in place for the tasks that we're just about to perform. And this has benefits for reducing kind of safety incidents and inefficiency in the operations and work problems. And they sort of tie this big link, then they just tie this big umbrella a couple of times in the paper, this big link between safety quality and work effectiveness. David, before we move on to practical takeaways, I realise that there's a couple of topics in the paper we haven't talked about yet. The first one I want to mention is they lay out, similar to how you did, the different types of times we might want to do a JSA and what it might support. So I think their version of it is that we should do JSAs when the work is novel or we should do JSAs when there are changes to the normal procedures or we should do JSAs when it's particularly high-risk work. And what they they sort of categorised the JSAs they saw based on whether they met those categories. And they concluded that a lot of JSAs seemed to be done for things that didn't tick any of those boxes, that were routine not necessarily high risk, no change to the normal procedures. No, you're right, Drew. I think that's a that's a great takeout. When I read that, I read that thinking, oh gee, it was it's another one of these five or six point lists which you could almost massage most jobs into. And you're right, the authors did find that half of the um, JSAs didn't meet any of those. And that's not in the practical takeaways, but it's a good time to mention it now is to 
ask yourself the question as as to, as a listener is what is the criteria by which you require people in your organization to prepare um, and complete a JSA and you know have a critical reflection on what the criteria is that you've set that, that's it I think if you believe in doing JSAs there is an argument for making them compulsory all the time yeah, the argument would go something like until we've done the JSA how do we know whether this task is high risk or change conditions or different from the routine planning so that we need to do controls and so that would I, I think it is a plausible argument to say that's why we do JSAs always is we do them because that's our first step is has something changed or is there a particular high risk here or is there a control that doesn't match the normal procedures and I think if that's the the assumption you're going to go in with then I would be adding I would be making sure that my organization saw that as a core part of the operation so that it, it was you know that every task had an extra half an hour assigned into it and that you know all of the training support put around it so it didn't become what it's very likely to become in that situation where you get someone who's doing the same task every day needing to do a JSA before they empty the kitchen bin or something like that which is what you see when organizations go over the top with practices applying to every task. Yes. And then the other thing is that if you're doing them like that, then it makes no sense at all for the supervisor to have prepared it the day before. Because you, if the whole point is check if anything has changed locally, then having a pre-prepared JSA is not going to make much sense. So I think in this little brief interlude we're having here, Drew, I think this is just the nature of the complexity of something that happens every day in the, in the organization and the potential goal for a you know, gap between how something could work and probably how it's you know being done in the organization because you could do anything with JSAs like you said you could go from making them compulsory for everything to almost nothing changing the purpose lots of different hypotheses we've mentioned in this episode about different ways you could try to understand their effectiveness but I think it is a really big question because there is an opportunity before you start a job to think about how the work's going to happen and put in place controls that directly improve the safety of work that's just about to occur so there's a huge prize for organizations I think for safety in in investing a lot of time to try to figure out you know their JSA process Drew is that something you'd agree with or yes and I'm not sure whether we're going to cover this in the takeaways but I think that this is the big paradox we face is that it is totally legitimate and makes total sense that organizations are worried about that residual risk between what's in their standard procedures and what's actually about to happen. They're worried about that and they have an opportunity to influence it because that's a time of day when they have a supervisor there, they can get a safety person there, they can get everyone together. There's a chance to do something. And so you've got a need, you've got an opportunity. What we don't have is a proven useful tool to drop into that need and opportunity. And so I think we can say that there is something that fits into that space is almost inevitable that organizations are going to be trying things there. But I think we can also say that we've got good reason to be skeptical about any of the specific tools, whether they're working as well as we think we do when we drop them into that space. Just because you have a need and opportunity doesn't mean that whatever you're doing is working well. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about some practical takeaways. And I just ripped through here because the paper didn't spend any time on 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 practical takeaways. But I think there's just a few things that I that I reflected on and I thought of. And, and Drew, I'm really interested in, in your thoughts about these. So we can probably say, as we've said a few times, that JSAs, as potentially designed and intended in, you know, in the literature or within your organization, 
can have positive benefits to risk reduction and work performance. You know, they but I think can is the ultimate word there. But there's there's more to be done before we just say that JSAs reduce risk. The second Drew is that. Sorry, Drew, do you want to? Talk uh, about I was going to say that my interpretation of that can would be that I'd say that there's a couple of very plausible mechanisms. There is a potential for improving safety by increasing hazard awareness. There's a potential for improving safety by improving communication and coordination. And there's a potential for improving safety by last minute decisions that influence the controls that we're putting in place. So we have all of those potentials there. Um, I'm, I'm not certain that JSAs necessarily can achieve those potentials or not. I think that's, the, that's, the, that's what the can means is we need to actually test whether they do or not. Yeah, oh, great. Great extra learning opportunity there with those three things, Drew. I think that's really helpful to think about what's coming out of our JSA process. The second one is that um, I suppose it's a little bit similar. So so maybe I won't go over that. I'll just go straight. Oh, no, 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 David, please, please do, because I like this one. Um, so what, what, what David's got written is he said that because the process is performed at the point of risk, it has the potential to enhance the safety of work, uh, which I don't know if David's going to claim this, but I'm going to say that this is a really insightful thing, is that a risk assessment that was performed three weeks earlier is guaranteed to have a long separation and a long causal chain between the work. Something that we're doing on site just before we do the work has got to have more potential than something done decades ago for, sorry, decades, et cetera, has got to have more potential than something that's more removed to enhance the direct safety of work. There's a good, any link is going to be a one-step link between doing this activity, something happens, the work changes, as opposed to like multiple steps in the causal chain. Yeah, that was my reflection for people who want to go, I think it's episode 50 when we discussed our safety of work model. You know, even though JSA is sort of an administrative process, it's got, you know, a real opportunity to deliver physical safety outcomes. Like we said, actual controls um, in the work, change the equipment, change the process and, you know, change other resources and and the execution of work itself. So, you know, it it provides us with an opportunity that I think um, safety people should be very interested in. The third thing here, I suppose, practically, is you're likely to be doing, and maybe Drew Drew will disagree with this now based on the last conversation, but you're likely to be doing too many JSAs for too many tasks. Like I know organizations who every time you need a permit, you need a JSA or you need a JSA for every job. And when people, like even this study finds, when people don't see the need for a JSA because it's a job they do every day, then it becomes a compliance activity. And when something becomes a compliance activity, then it's got the potential to always be a compliance activity, even when it's probably in those situations where you would want it to be anything but a compliance activity. So I think that's a trade-off there, Drew. If you do it, if you do it a lot, that the times that you really want it done well, it's done as a transactional activity. David, this is not remotely supported by the current paper that we're reading or evidence that's out in the public. So this is a f- forward reference to a future time. But yeah, I am I am at some point in the near future going to claim that pre-task risk assessments like JSAs, you should stop doing them altogether. But at, at the time I actually make that claim, I'm going to provide the evidence for that claim. For now, we cannot make, I, I cannot sort of publicly say that is current recommendation, but I'll go along with this weaker one that probably you're doing too many. Yeah, okay. Well, very good, Drew. Well, for someone who hasn't said something, you've just said a lot. But look, I think, and again, maybe that's just a David Proven practical takeaway there, not from the paper, but um, please, please think about the criteria that you're applying to organizations. And and maybe that um, goes into the, 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 next, the next couple of practical takeaways is that, you know, JSAs, you know, are a likely candidate for safety clutter in your organization. And again, I was saying here, maybe not necessarily to remove, even though Drew may one point in the future say remove them, but maybe to re-engineer, you know, how and when you do those activities. And 
Drew, I thought this is actually, there's a real opportunity here. So we're episode 62 and we've got some people who've been listening along for over a year now, and I'm sure they're just chomping at the bit to do some own company research as a safety professional. So you could, I thought you could actually have a go at replicating this exact study for yourself in your organization. And, and what you do is talk to a few people in different roles about the JSA process, talk to some workers, talk to some supervisors, some safety people, and some, some project managers. We've got episodes now on ethnographic interviewing techniques and a, and a whole range of um, ideas for people. Go and observe a few pre-start or JSA preparations. So, so, so go and see how they work. Go and get copies of 20 JSAs that have been done in your organization and just work through those three data sets. What, what do people tell you about the JSA process? What do you observe when you're watching them get prepared and, and get done? And what do you what do you read and see when you look at JSAs? And you know, as a safety professional, that'd be an amazingly useful task for you to to do. And you know, this paper provides an opportunity for you to kind of see how how you might just go and do that. There's I don't think there's anything anything stopping any safety professional from replicating this study. I'll go a little bit in terms of tips that I don't think they implement in this paper that you could do to make that easier for yourself. One of them is I wouldn't ask people the straight up question about whether they like JSAs or not. Um, I don't think you'll get a straight answer. Um, and I don't think you'll get a straight answer either about what a JSAs do well. But I do think that if you ask them things like, you know, most people would have experienced JSAs delivered by different people. So, you know, ask them that. You know, who do you reckon does the best JSAs? And what is it about the way they do JSAs that you reckon makes them better than the way other people or other companies do them? What sort of tasks do you reckon they work better for than, for, than not for? Why is that? Think of the five you did this week. Which one do you reckon was actually most helpful? What was it about that particular day that the JSA was more helpful than the other days? And looking for those differences, that, doesn't mean, that helps people because they don't need to say, oh, I hate them, these are always a waste of time. It lets them make the comparisons about what does and doesn't work well. And I think you'll get sort of clearer answers from those sorts of questions. In terms of getting copies of them, just the important thing there is don't assume that what's actually on the JSA is at all what happened. But it's still kind of, it, it is useful information. It's useful for comparing. Yeah, Drew, I think, you know, separately, I've run this side project on the Safety Futures Program. And when um, they get to the the mission on prescribing work, they actually have to look at a JSA and then go and observe the task and try to understand that that difference. So maybe that's a fourth one here is, you know, do the interviews, observe some some JSA preparation, get some copies of those JSAs and the ones you get copies of, put it in your pocket and go and actually observe the task that is actually reflected in the JSA and add a fourth kind of data set in to, to the mix. Yeah, what I think would be a really interesting challenge is don't just look for things that are on the JSA that people aren't doing. Look for things that people are doing to protect themselves and others that are not recorded on the JSA. Look for what sort of you know, things are built into their task or that they're improvising on the fly that help them be safe and look for differences in that direction as well. And I think you'll find that you know, there are things that people do that they don't bother to record that are good for safety as well as things that are on the JSA that aren't done in practice. Great, Drew. So the question that we asked this week is what are the benefits of job safety analyses? Um, do you want to have a go at the answer? I would say we have three big candidates. We have a candidate that they benefit by raising hazard awareness. We have a candidate that they benefit by improved coordination of tasks or formalization of work or communication. And we have a candidate that they sometimes actually directly lead to changes in the work, either by participation or by management degree, that result in improved controls being in place physically on the day. 
but we don't have, at least from this study, evidence that those three things are achieved or how often they're achieved or when they're achieved. So that's it for this week. If you have a more nuanced question about JSAs, drop it in the comments um, on LinkedIn or, or put it in our episode ideas portal and hopefully there might be more papers floating around of the select few that might answer that question more specifically but we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization send any comments questions or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com <laughs>